Um, so this is uh, a, a class we we're, we're taking on in Lent to uh, delve into stories. Um, the, the, obviously, we as people of faith, we gather around um, the, the gospel story, but we also think it's important to, to learn from one another's stories. That's part of being church together. Um, the stories that make up our lives are important, and we can learn from one another's stories and grow in intimacy, I think, um, when people step out and share those stories. Um, some of those stories are really hard, and what we're going to hear today is a pretty hard story, um, a really hard story. So uh, we're going to invoke the Holy Spirit as we tell our enter into this time of story sharing today. Christ be with us and among us as we gather. Let us open with prayer. God, we give you thanks for this day, a day where we might gather and be strengthened by that gathering. We pray your spirit into this space. You have accompanied Ed and Nancy through so much. We pray that you bear them up in this moment as we learn from their story, as we receive their story, and as we are strengthened by this time of being church together. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, you hear okay, am I loud enough? Is that, what do you think? I think, yeah. Speak, okay? speak as loud as you can. Yeah. Okay. Um, so thanks for being here, everybody. Old friends, good friends, new friends. We really appreciate it. Um, Nancy and I are going to do our best to tell you our story, one of our stories, a story, uh, that uh, we've been living with now for a long time, 20 years coming up July. Uh, but it's not as if the, what we have to say is unique, actually, entirely unique anyway. Uh, we're talking now about loss and tragedy, uh, but without any question, we're not the only ones in the room who have sustained losses and experienced tragedies. Uh, we don't know your stories, but I'm sure there are stories out there. Uh, we happen to have one that, that we would like to share with you as well as we can do it. We don't have that much time. This one hour period is, is probably not going to let us get over all of the, what we think of as the important details, but we'll get over many. We regret terribly that Hadley cannot be here. Nancy and I have been working with Hadley now for several weeks, trying to make, make this work out. And uh, she's not well. She let us know last night she couldn't be here. <clears throat> so thankfully, Jared, at the very last minute, is able to come in and take over. So we really appreciate that. Um, uh, faith in plain sight. Um, that's, that's the point here. And uh, faith is in plain sight all over if you look, if you think. It, it's around. Uh, you don't have to think very carefully 
for very long to see it and appreciate it and understand it is here. Uh, you just have to look a little bit and be aware of it. The Holy Spirit is here. And so we depend on that as we reflect on this occasion, this story, as we try to pass along to you what we can of this story and how, how it went and how we tried to cope and how the church coped and what the church did uh, for us and with us throughout this period. Um, so, um, and Nancy and I are working together with this and then Jared will feel free to step in and, and, uh, and, and move us along or change directions. Um, so the, the story is this, uh, July 19, 2003, we lost our uh, son-in-law, who was 44, George, and our daughter, Judy, who was 42, and their son, George, who was 14, and their daughter, Jordan, who was 12. We were all killed in a plane crash uh, while on a family trip. Uh, Nancy and I had, uh, I'm sorry, did you want to say? No, the trip was to Africa. They were going on safari there. Yeah, the, the, this is a big family, the Brumley family. They were mainly centered in the Atlanta area. And uh, it was a big family. They were close. They liked to get together often, and they got together every year for some grand family occasion. Uh, and they, they're objective was to stay in close touch with each other, but also to look to the raising of the children to be sure the children had the values that they thought needed to be instilled. Uh, and so these get-togethers were, were common enough, uh, and Nancy and I were quite well aware. We never attended one, but we saw Judy and George go off to these every year. So this uh, this particular one in Africa was, was not unusual in the happening of it, I mean, the scheduling of it. It was just kind of a reach, we thought, to do such a thing. Uh, but nevertheless, they were, they were somewhat audacious, I guess it would be fair to say. So uh, on July uh, 19, uh, Nancy and I were, um, in the mountains of North Carolina with dear old friends celebrating a friend's birthday. It was one of those typical sort of house party things. A lot of old friends, a lot of laughter, jokes, stories about it, so forth. And that was on the 19th, this Saturday, July 19, 2003. Uh, the next day, Nancy and I drove to Montreat, and uh, we got there about noon, and uh, got into uh, the house <clears throat> and um, were busy putting together a lunch, some sandwiches and so forth, and the telephone rang. This was on the 20th of July, and um, it was our old friend Ann Neal, who lives here, lived here in Chapel Hill at the time. And Ann said, uh, Ed, uh, would you put Nancy on the phone? I said, yeah, I will, and Nancy was working on a sandwich, making one, and so we were both on the phone, and, and Ann said, 
I have some very bad news and I want you to sit down, both of you sit down. Are you sitting down? We were. And she said, um, they've been lost, the plane crashed. And it happened yesterday, the 19th, about noon, and they were all lost. Uh, Judy, George, George and Jordan, and then eight other family members, and the pilot and the co-pilot, all, all of them. And Nancy and I were, we were wrecked almost instantaneously. We said, Andy, is it, can that really be true? Is that, is that true? Are you sure? Can you, is it? Is there a possibility it's not true? And we sort of had a uh, vision of a plane down in the jungle with vines around and people sort of looking at No, she said, no, no. It, 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 the plane crashed on Mount Kenya near the top of Mount Kenya and there are no survivors. We know that. It's a fact. And uh, so we were, Nancy and I were sort of beyond the pale. I don't know what we were doing. We were, but within, within just minutes, it seems, uh, in came the door opened. The door opened, and in came Jim Bryant and Betsy Bryant, and old friends and church members. And uh, they came right in. They had been told, I think Russell Bryant, their son, and Charlotte had told them. And uh, John and Betsy Pringle, and it was John's birthday we've been celebrating, they came in. And they immediately sort of took over uh, everything. Uh, they saw, obviously, that we were sort of non-functional. And um, they said, we're going back to Chapel Hill and we'll take care of everything. We'll shut down and put you in the car. They did that. And uh, we entered a fog, really. And um, they drove us back to Chapel Hill. <clears throat> when we got here, they took us right to uh, the place where Nancy's mother was living. Her mother was in her 80s, Evelyn <coughs> Sims. Uh, Evelyn had moved here after her husband Bob had died. She wanted to be near us and Nancy, her only child. And Evelyn was there and Bob Dunham was there with her. And there were other members of the pastoral staff and there were other members, other friends there with Evelyn, but we remember Bob in particular. And we were so thankful that she had that support so quickly because we didn't know who knew about this. <coughs> that was very comforting to us that she was in the care of people who were concerned about her. Right. Yeah, and Evelyn uh, was, uh, she was always a very strong person. And uh, she was strong here. Uh, and she was, she was getting strength from people around her, Bob, but she had an intrinsic strength that I've always admired, uh, and that helped us immensely. Evelyn was uh, very sharp, very acute, uh, lived to age 104, never lost her cognition, which was pretty astonishing. So she was a very important part of our, of our handling this and our effort to recover. So, you know, the, the question, how would people, and some of you in the room have had occasions when you were in something probably not too different 
And you, how do you get through it? What do you do? How do you, how do you swim out of it, get out of it? How do you manage? How do you go forward? And uh, you stumble and you become very dependent. You're, you're very dependent. You need all the help that is there. You need help keeping yourself up and on your calendar. You need help remembering to eat. You need help remembering to get here and get there. Uh, you need help getting to various appointments and <clears throat> making contact with people. You need help in planning, helping plan services. You need help in thinking about what to do. Should you go to Africa? Should you try to climb the mountain and look at this site? Would that help? Uh, what should you do? And uh, all these things go through the mind. And then you say, why did this happen? Why could something like this happen? And over and over again, we we see that, uh, and we see this in the paper. And I sometimes tell friends, you know, that this and that happened. An earthquake happened in Turkey, in Syria and Turkey. And we'll read a, a letter to the editor that says, how could God let this happen? So we're always quizzing, always asking, searching, and <clears throat> we scour our Bibles. We think about the event. We sort of retrace the steps from beginning to end as well as we can do it. We wonder where a mistake, if one was made, where was it made? Uh, and one thing, it, yeah. And one thing that um, was a great help was that very quickly the churches, both in Atlanta, where the vast majority of this group was from, and here, um, stepped up. And um, in going back over the chronology of things, uh, I found that in Atlanta, first the Trinity Presbyterian Church down there, uh, had a service two days later in the evening to commemorate this family. It was a big news story because it was, and if we've got some of those uh, news stories back there on the table if you have time to peruse that. Um, but, but that was very helpful and uh, we of course couldn't get to the Trinity service that quickly, but our church um, on the 24th, which was five days later, had a, in, in um, their regular Sunday service devoted a good bit of time to this remembrance and all that was very important um, for our beginning to accept this and to put it in some sort of place that we could we, we could somehow manage to keep living and just keep going. So um, 
that that was a big scale. I, I thought that was it's a it's a powerful image um, that you that you use the word you entered the fog. Yeah. And then in the fog, it's just a it's, it's a it's a painful image, but yeah. you you lose your you lose your spot you lose your way, and I'm curious. Like how they, they maybe you know, and, and I'm I'm aware that you all dealt with this very differently from one another. And I wonder, would you mind sharing a little bit about, like Nancy, do you want to? Well, um, I got busy reading, just reading everything I could find out about what other people's experiences were, what wisdom uh, they could impart for somehow keeping on, and. Uh, one of the books that I found the most helpful that I have given to many people is Living When a Loved One Has Died by Earl Rowland. And it is a simple book, a uh, few words, but very powerfully put together. So I recommend this to people. Um, the other thing that I got very involved in was uh, the biographies of our lost ones. And I wanted to uh, put together a sketch of their lives um, to share with friends and family. And so I got busy, and there's examples of this on the back table too. Uh, individually speaking about their lives in, in these little booklets. And um, uh, that was a help to me, just to go back over photographs and remember what their accomplishments were and what their uh, focus in their lives had been. Um, and simultaneously, interestingly, there was an effort afoot to uh, redo our garden here at the church. And so we, uh, in thinking ahead and where this burial would be when the remains were recovered and came back to us from Africa, uh, where they would be buried. And so, I got involved in that project uh, of the redo of our garden uh, as a memorial garden uh, for church members because our family, Junior George and G4, we called him, and Jordan, were all members of this church. So um, that was an important way to get out of the fog, as it were, to to do something concrete like that, really concrete, <laughs> actually. Uh, so um, those things were important to me, but Ed had a different approach to help him deal with this whole thing. Well, I was trying to keep up with Nancy and stay near her. Uh, but then we did have to separate a little bit and go our own ways and uh, from time to time. And, and Nancy's mother very presciently said to us early on, said, 
I hope this doesn't mean the end of your marriage. <laughs> and I thought, gosh, what a thing to say. I mean, I can see how it was threatened, but I didn't know that at the time. And couldn't see the threat somehow. I don't know what it was. But she saw something that was very important and made the observation openly to us. Uh, you, you, you feel, you can feel as if somehow God has turned his back and looked away. And I'm going to ask Jared to read Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 8, verse 38, on that point. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And thank you, Jared. And that's, that's what we have to hold to. Nancy and I, then in looking at the cause, we, we heard Reverend Rip William Sloan Coffin speak. Uh, he was lead pastor of the Riverside Church in New York, and... Uh, and he talked about uh, the loss of his son, Jacob. I think the name was Jacob. A uh, young man in his 20s. And uh, Reverend Coffin said, uh, after he, the sermon, and after he stepped down, uh, one of his wonderful congregation members walked up to him and said, Oh, Reverend Coffin, Reverend Coffin, I just don't know how God could let this happen to you. And Reverend Coffin said, well, I said, well, thank you, ma'am. That's very, very kind of you to say that. But God didn't have anything to do with this. If Jacob hadn't had that second shandy, he wouldn't have driven his car off the pier in Boston and drowned in his car. God didn't have anything to do with that. So in a certain sense, it bothers me a little bit to hear that story. I know there's a lot of truth there. Somehow there were some mistakes made on our side. We didn't know it at the time. Nancy and I never said, oh no, don't do this. It's not a good idea. We never said that. We just thought, well, here they go. It's another, it's another big trip. They do this every year and they all get together. And it's very, very important. But uh, as we've reflected and talked about it, reflected on it and talked about it later, there were some mistakes. There, there, was, there was some judgment that wasn't so good. And there were some family members who were asked to go and didn't go. So there we are, you know, we, we, we can make, we can have judgment at times that's flawed, impaired <clears throat> and regrettable. Uh, I have to say that our, our ministers here, our pastoral staff, church members, friends, colleagues, neighbors, people we didn't know even, stepped in, came by the house, knocked at the door, left things, left food, of course, uh, offered to help in any way possible. <clears throat> so many people came together. I've often wondered how people who don't have that kind of support, how they make it through. Uh, I found it, uh, in my own way, uh, important to try to get a little closer to this family, even though they had been, been killed. Uh, I went out to their house. They, were, they loved gardening, and they were very much into gardening. And so I thought, 
maybe I can go out there and be in the garden and do something in the garden without damaging anything, since I don't know very much about gardening. <laughs> but, but, you know, dig something, hold some of this and do that. But just in the hot July, August weather, get hot, get exhausted, be near where they were, where they like to be, in maybe some minor constructive way. Uh, so that, that was a help to me. Nancy didn't care about that approach, but that's okay. She was busy. Well, I was busy at home with so many people came into our home immediately and started taking care of us. And there were telephone calls that you had to talk to people and keep a list of who called and people who came by to visit. And it was it was busy and sort of sounds good because it occupied you. Um, but we just approached it in different ways and sort of some of it you, you had to uh, be cordial to the people who were coming and so all of that busyness and those people really were important and, and got, us, got us through these early very very tender um, awful, awful days. Uh, and and that was where you saw God's love was in all of that expression of doing for you and uh, trying to fill the gaps that you couldn't fill. Uh, it was it was totally important and and life-saving, really, for us, I think. There are two quotes that I keep coming back to me on this. Uh, one of the services was in the, at the Trinity Church, Trinity Church in Atlanta. That was their church. And the minister was Scott Black Johnston, who's now in New York, I think, Bob. Maybe retired. But Scott Black Johnston said to us, this is very difficult, but the second year is going to be harder. And we thought, gosh, really? Woo. And, uh, and then our friend Jim Lutze, who, who eventually was chancellor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, said, you know, uh, they say time heals all wounds, but I'm not sure about this one. So I don't, you know, things to think about, to reflect on. Um, uh, we have, uh, Nancy wrote a letter, really a wonderful letter, I think 18 months later, what we call a Christmas letter, and it'll help, I think, if she reads it. And then the ashes were committed to our memorial garden. Before the garden was fully finished and ready to go in 2006, and Bob presided over that, Bob Dunham. Thankfully, Bob is here, and I'm going to ask Jared to read you want me to read my letter first? First, yeah, that comes first. This came really first before the garden um, <clears throat> burial. Um, and this was uh, written years in 2004. Dear friends, as we come to the end of the year, our thoughts turn to the holidays and the meanings conveyed by them. 
We are reminded of the love and concern that has surrounded and upheld us these many months since the deaths of our Julia George, George IV, and Jordan altered our lives and its course in ways we could never have <clears throat> nor wanted to anticipate. We write now because we wanted you to know how very grateful we are for the attentions you gave us in those early days and weeks and that we are slowly beginning to adapt to our new reality. It has not been an easy 18 months Death at any time, in any way, is a phenomenon that is fraught with so many emotions and changes that all you're able to do is to just live each day the best way that you can. Habits help. Getting up, dressing, getting some food, attending to those duties or people that present themselves before you and trying to be thankful, little by little, that you're able to do those simple things. As the days unfold, and they will, the reality of what has befallen does not change. They don't come back. And you know that you are the one who must accommodate now to this wrenching fact how is this possible? By slowly, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, accepting the help and love of those who have reached out and come to comfort you, to trying, in trying to just live, you can become stronger. And as strength returns, you can begin to see about you the rest of life. You begin to be able to be thankful for your wonderful family, both close and extended, for your attentive friends, those close and extended, for your faith community, near and wide, that keeps you in their prayers, and most amazingly of all, for those who you may barely know, know you, but who, because they have been deeply touched by your tragedy, right to extend their sympathy and concern. All of these aspects of your life are crucial to recovery. We would not be this far in our healing had it not been for all these people. And so, as Christmas time, at Christmas time, when love came down, we thank you with every fiber of our being for upholding us through this most excruciating time in our lives. Uh, but it is important for us to tell you that your cards, your kind words of condolence, your concerned thoughts and prayers have carried us day by day we know we will be okay, never the same, but okay, and that you have helped make it so. With love and blessings, Nancy and Andrew. So, that sort of summed it up. Right. Never be the same. Making him. Mm -hmm. yeah. So then the work 
on the garden went on and that was fortuitous because the garden had come to a point where it needed to be revisited and work, reworked and made a little bit more easily accessible to, to all of us here. Uh, and so a lot of people got together and Nancy was right in the thick of that and uh, engaged the services of a, uh, a planner in Greensboro to sort of revamp, rebuild the garden. And with our intention of putting our ashes, the ashes in the garden, the ashes are, are in, um, in at Trinity Church, in their churchyard. They were all apportioned. There's one story I have to tell you. Uh, and then the, the part of the family's from Charleston, so some of the ashes have been apportioned to Charleston, to a Brumley Cemetery there. But we wanted to get our family ashes here. Uh, so everybody worked hard to get the garden uh, up and ready, but we just couldn't quite get it ready at the time we needed to put the ashes in. Uh, uh, one thing I want to say, this will be memorable to you, but maybe much of this will, I hope it will anyway, I hope you can use some of this. Uh, we got a call from a friend in uh, Charlotte, uh, Sandra Conway, Wil Sandra Wilcox Conway. She grew up here and she was a very close friend of Julia. Her father was faculty at the medical school and knew Ben quite well. And Sandra said, uh, on the phone said, uh, this was several years after, said, uh, I had been going to Kenya uh, for years. I started in high school in the summertime and I worked there as a volunteer uh, at Mount Kenya. And uh, I've gotten to know the head of the uh, maintenance people there, the Kenyans, a man named Ch Chikuku. I can't give you the, I don't know if that's the first name or last name, but that's all she gave us. And she said, Shikuku has come to visit me in Charlotte and he wants to come to Chapel Hill and, and, and visit the Bromley's home. And um, we said, gosh, how amazing that is. And so he did, he came, and it turns out he was head of the team that was involved in the recovery on the mountain. And uh, one aspect of that recovery that we think is rather miraculous is that in in uh, removing the, the remains and bringing them down the mountain, the wedding ring of our daughter was found. This small gold band in all of that was recovered and so I wear it to this day. Amazing. So Shikuku came and uh, visited the Brummies home and walked through the garden uh, and then he came back another time with his wife and children uh, and that, that was special and he said uh, it was very hard to go up that mountain. It's about near 15,000 feet and there are four peaks at Mount Kenya to it's the United Nations National Heritage Sites and so forth. But family members did climb that mountain and they did put a plaque, a bronze plaque at the top. And we have pictures of that plaque. So it's kind of gratifying to see that. But uh, the ashes, back to the, back to the burial of the ashes, we had the service and it was a very special, very moving service. And Bob presided 
and we have the sermon. And I'm going to ask Jared to read part of it, not all of it. Uh, Bob had a preamble talking about the garden and the ashes, and then the sermon, the body of the sermon. So, Jared, can you? Uh, because the garden wasn't quite finished. No, the garden wasn't finished. Yeah. Bob commented on that and regretted that, but there was nothing to be done about that and at that time. That the incompleteness of the garden is in measure with the incompleteness of the journey of grief. Um, it's that's just how life is. It's, yeah. it's you're never, as you said, we're, we're never the same. But uh, the text was this from uh, Romans five. Uh, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Bob's words. <laughs> this text from Paul's letter to the Romans gets to the heart of the church's faith, faith in the face of even the most unspeakable of tragedies. But it is not an easy text to hear, and it would have been virtually impossible to hear three years ago. Three years ago, numb as we were in the face of so much loss so suddenly, we could only speak of the power of memory to heal us. Both memories to which we clung so tightly of George and Jean, of Beth and Bill and Sarah, of Lois and Richard and Alex, and of our own dear ones, George and Julia and George and Jordan, and our struggling memories of the promises of Scripture. Today, perhaps because of the gift of time, we can, be, we can begin to wrestle with the reasoning behind Paul's words. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us. If I were to ask any of you to complete the sentence, suffering produces, you might come up with a host of words that would never lead to endurance, and then to character, and then to hope. For some people, suffering leads only to irritation that leads to bitterness, and then perhaps to, a, to the question of why. But for others, suffering does do what Paul suggests. It leads them down the path of humility, to a quality of endurance. By steady perseverance, it strengthens one's character, and through self-reflection, it leads to a discovery of God's providential care through life, and thus a sort of hope for the future. But no one moves quickly or easily from suffering to hope, or at all, without the middle step of endurance. Time is so crucial to the logic of these verses. Today, we live in a high-speed, uh, culture that we don't like pain and we will do most anything to see our way through that pain quickly or to regain or and to regain a measure of normalcy sorry it's a little bit of it's cut off on the end so I'm guessing of the words but by its very na nature endurance is not a quality we can develop in a hurry real suffering is not a momentary affliction for some people suffering is an unwelcome companion for years but through endurance, we gain an unparalleled opportunity to reflect deeply on our lives, perhaps to see where the imprint of the hand of God and therein to transcend either despair on the one hand or blithe optimism on the other. 
on the way to an enduring hope. The process from suffering to endurance to character to hope begins in living the life we are given to live without denial, without avoidance. A dear friend named John told me of a day he checked into a New York hospital for the first of what would become a series of heart valve replacements. He remembered sitting on the bed facing the window and watching all the other people out on the street going about their business, living their lives, enjoying the day. A deep melancholy began to settle in. Just then, a young cardiologist came into the room and in an uncomfortably brusque manner, but with accurate perception, said, I know what you're thinking. You'd rather be someone else, and you'd rather be somewhere else. You're not, so you'll have to deal with where and who you are. John said he was right. He reminded me of an important lesson. You can only be who you are. You cannot trade with anyone else. God does not allow such self-serving options. We must live the life we are given and play the hand we are dealt, even when life's experiences make us want to escape. Such self-discovery, along with the awareness that so many people are suffering as we, provides the catalyst to the development of the kind of character they can, when combined with an enduring faith, produce hope. For it is hope that is at the heart of Christian community, the hope that the same love that led Jesus to the cross and raised him from the dead, that the love within which our lives are kept, that in him our hope is not in vain. For suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not, does not disappoint us. That is a promise. Thank you, Jared. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. <clears throat> well, that, I think, is our story, as well as we can tell it. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for being so patient, so quiet, so attentive. Uh, I hope we, you can take away something from this that you find is going to help you in your moments of travail, <clears throat> testing. We all do face those from time to time, uh, maybe inevitably. So uh, we do have, if you look at the chalkboard, uh, you want to get to that. Yeah, um, okay. I want to, on behalf of everyone in the room, thank both of you for having the courage to tell this story. I know it's not easy to relive it, um, but we thank you for sharing it. And um, it, it has stirred up a lot of emotion that we had, you know, scabbed over, as it were. Um, but there, there are uh, articles in the back that can help you maybe uh, understand uh, uh, what, what happened more uh, fully if you have time to peruse those. So um, feel free. That image of scabbing over, I think it, it reminds us that we don't know so much of what people are going through around us, but the gift of storytelling is that we, we see one another in a deeper way. And, um, and you know, that we, we have a, a moment to connect our story with your story. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, the format of this class is to spend some time um, not just receiving stories, but interacting with the story a bit. So we'll invite you to, um, you know, each week when as people share their stories, these are just some priming questions. 
How do you connect? Do you connect with the story? How do you connect with the story? Um, how does our faith inform our response to such a story? And what will you take away from the conversation? Um, so I just invite you to turn in to pairs, threes, fours, uh, however you wish, and just spend a little time discussing with one another. Can I ask them a question first? Yeah. It may help those conversations. Yeah. Just to thank you for being open and vulnerable with us um, today. Can you talk just for a minute? We don't have that much time. How this experience changed your faith? You know, that number two is about how does it inform our response, but how has it changed your faith over the past 20 years? Yeah. Well, I would say quickly, um, it, in the early days, it brought it home because of all the outpouring of love. If, if God is love, then all that love was God. And that, that was a concrete example of God with us, I believe. So that was one way I felt that my faith was a foundation and uh, an essential part of getting through this. All, you know, just the outpouring of that love. So that was, that was it for me. It still is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I think um, faith was certainly in plain sight, and it is in plain sight. The Holy Spirit uh, was here and evident in all this activity around us that went on and on and on, that seemed to anticipate needs, uh, that stepped in. It had to be that. It had to be that. It's there. Just have to look and, and uh, accept it as, as uh, being there. The other thing uh, it, for me, and I think for Nancy too, it uh, caused us to plunge sort of vigorously, somewhat deeply into our faith, understanding it, reading, trying to understand its history, the stories, the, the, our faith in its richness. And uh, maybe to an extent that we would not have done before. Um, and that's been a, uh, a persistent um, effect. And I think it's fair to say what you love. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I think also our, uh, I worried about Evelyn's comment about our marriage because I knew that she was very uh, perceptive. She could see things we couldn't see, and she was very smart. And uh, so we sort of redoubled our efforts, I think it's fair to say, to make sure that we did everything we could to keep this relationship strong together. Well, and one thing I was always so thankful for was that I was going through this with somebody and not by myself and that was really uh, a huge part of this the beginning of feeling of being stronger again 
that you had someone so close to you that had also experienced this very same awful <clears throat> tragedy. <clears throat> Excuse me. And and that was huge. That was really huge. So I don't think there was ever any problem actually about us breaking. <laughs> That's so good to hear. <laughs> Sorry to, sorry to no, 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 it's a, it's a great question. Thank you, Robert. So, yeah, Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions for them? You haven't talked about Bromley Forest. I think you need to mention that. Oh, well, that's a, a very good point because people, um, so many memorials began to uh, occur. In, in the newspaper accounts, people were directed to give uh, donations to the Triangle Community Foundation uh, in their honor. That was the quickest one. And um, there was a, Julia had been a traveler and people donated to the Julia McNeil's uh, Brumley Travel Scholarship that was set up in her name at the university. And um, uh, their home uh, out on New, uh, New Hope on Church. New Hope Church. New Hope Church Road. Yeah. Uh, they had acquired acreage across the street uh, of New Hope Church. I think they ultimately had hundred how many can, can I can yeah. I help here yeah uh, the, the they were deeply into conservation Marla yeah. and uh, they had had uh, they saw this place building up growing land disappearing to development and so they began working very hard to accumulate some property that would eventually become public property and they, they had uh, near 600 acres of land uh, out of New Hope Church Road adjacent to their home and uh, when they died, after they died, the property all went to their, to the uh, family members remaining, the uh, twin sisters in particular. And uh, the twin sisters who lived in Atlanta did not want this. Uh, they, they don't live here, they couldn't manage it. And so they were looking, looking for ways to uh, transfer it in some way. And they offered it to UNC but UNC wouldn't take it. They offered it to Duke, Duke wouldn't take it. They offered it to the Robertson Scholars Program, which is a Duke UNC program, and they thought it could be a headquarters between the two campuses. Uh, but they needed funding to do that, and Julian Robertson was the funder of the Robertson Scholars. He's a family friend in, of theirs in Salisbury. And he wasn't, he didn't think that was such a good idea. So that didn't happen. So uh, eventually, uh, the the 600 acres, essentially 600 acres, were uh, sold by the by the twins, Marie and Nancy, to Triangle Land Conservancy, which is a local land conservancy organization, with uh, big help from the legislature, from the public. Uh, the public uh, came up with five million dollars and bought 600 acres of land. And it was then uh, uh, bought by the Triangle Land Conservancy, TLC, 
and, and, and set aside for uh, permanently and now made available for public use. So it's called Brumley Forest, 600 acres, and uh, there are hiking trails, picnic areas, even mountain biking areas mm -hmm. there. It's a, it's a great asset that this family, through many different ways, was able to leave as a legacy to, 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 the, to, to this community. So thank you, Marla, for asking that. That's, it's beautiful. You yeah. have to out there. <laughs> so that's good. Other questions? Well, thank you so much for your time yeah. and your vulnerability. <coughs> thank you. Um, I'll invite us to maybe close this time in prayer, and then I do hope you will maybe hang around for a few moments and, and talk to one another about about the story, but let's close in this time with a word of prayer. Good and gracious God, when you knit together human beings, you, you gave us hearts that are capable of so much. We can contain so many people and feelings, and you did make them these hearts of ours, capable of enduring so much. We thank you for that perseverance that you wove into our being. And even when we encounter those moments that come in life that <coughs> fill us with grief, that bring us to the doorstep of mourning, we thank you that we can still go on we certainly don't do that alone. It happens with so much more grace when we have community to bear us through. And we thank you for the many ways that communities near and far showed up for Ed and for Nancy. We praise you for that gift that the church can offer. But Lord, it does come back to these hearts that are your design that keep going. They keep going and persevering and perhaps one day settle down into the arms of your hope that does not disappoint. We pray that all are nourished by the sharing of this story today. May we invite the pain and that endurance and that hope into our own story. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.